Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Extra Serving, a Nation's Restaurant News podcast. I'm your host, Holly Fetchery. Today, we're going to be talking about the major themes we've taken away from earnings season. One of the major themes was a desire to grow traffic. While that may seem obvious, this quarter overlapped a quarter last year that was semi-normal, so the year-over-year traffic numbers are relatively evened out. How are these brands proposing a traffic increase to their brand? Also, we noticed that everyone is trying to grow exponentially. Last quarter, Chipotle announced it was trying to double its store count to 7,000 units. That comes before a quarter where Burger King announced it was also going after more store openings, and the king of them all, McDonald's, is trying to grow in the U.S. This is all colored by smaller brands growing during a time of uncertainty. The industry is still facing supply chain issues when trying to build, leaving signed agreements in the early stages of construction. Why are smaller brands seeing success where larger brands are facing obstacles? This week's interview is from our series on LinkedIn Live called Drinkton Live. The show is hosted by senior editor Ron Ruggles once a month. The episode you're going to listen to features Jeff Kakara, CEO of the casual dining concept 60 Vines, and John Olney, head winemaker and chief operating officer at Ridge Vineyard. Now it's time to introduce my co-hosts. I'm Sam Okus, editor-in-chief of Nation's Restaurant News. And I'm Leanne Sinsmeister, managing editor of NRN. And now let's kick it over to this week's sponsor. All right, guys, welcome back. Sam, you're on vacation. Welcome back to the loveliness that is your job. Oh, thank you. Loveliness slash mountain of emails. Yes, it's the best. That's very fair. I mean, it's, but it, aren't you glad to be back? It's, we work in a fun industry. Hey, don't get me wrong. Yes, there's, there's something sort of strangely gratifying about going through the many hundreds of emails sitting uh, in my inbox waiting for me because I'm a weirdo and I like am addicted to email. And so it's like getting my fix. It's probably unhealthy. I should probably talk to somebody about that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I spent a good two hours this morning getting my fix. But yes, um, word of the wise to those of you who don't believe in it, vacations, they're good. Um, don't look at email when you're on vacation. I pledged it to my family. I succeeded and, uh, and we're all the better for it. There's a reason we're recording this on a Wednesday, and that's because I'm going on vacation tomorrow. And let me don't. tell you, I will not be checking a single email. Good. Don't look at email. Even though they, all, they all come to my phone for notifications, but I will not be looking at them. Just turn them off. Turn off notifications. This is very easy. Too complicated. I'm not going to I've been telling it. you guys, you just delete the app. I mean, that Give me seems your like phone a step before too far. you go today, Holly. Oh, are you yeah, that's, that's a step too far. Like, that's, I'm going to forget to re-upload it. Then you got to... I wouldn't, I would forgive. I don't, for, to me, it's just, well, then you got to sign in when you re-download it. I, you know, that, that to me, it's just, is like, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong anti-notification guy. The only notifications I get are texts. Um, because if I had all my notifications on like Holly, I would be every 10 seconds looking at my phone and I already struggle with attention and I don't need another thing trying to grab my attention and distract me. So. Well, no. my phone is in another room, so I can't even look at it right now. Fair enough. It's at my desk and I'm in the cafeteria. So if you hear noises, it's the bustling cafeteria at our headquarters. Bustling. Bustling. All right. So let's dive into the news because I'm hungry and <laughs> this needs to go. You scheduled this for 12 o'clock. <laughs> uh, okay. So we're still in earnings season. Um, we're gotten to the tail end of it. We've been talking about it for the past few weeks because it's kind of the news right now. It's as Alicia loves to say, it's Christmas for us. Um, though Leanne and I were talking about Christmas earlier today for a different reason. <laughs> Holly was talking Christmas, <laughs> not me. I just wanted out there, Holly started it. It's true. Um, so anyways, we've seen a few themes amongst these brands. One of them is unit count. So McDonald's after a long pause has decided to start 
upping its game on unit counts in the US. Chipotle last quarter said they wanted to double to 7,000 units, which is absolutely insane. Um, and we've seen Burger King also try to grow units. And what is it about these like three top brands that means that they're trying to grow again? I think, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, restaurants want to grow their unit count, like across the board at all times. Uh, but right now, I think it's really a focus for a lot of these brands because they've had so many other things to focus on for the last few years. Like, hmm, how are we going to pay for the restaurants that we have? How are we going to make sure we're getting, you know, beef in this burger restaurant? Um, those things took up more, I think, like brain space for companies than they usually do. And so long-term goals like unit growth um, have been by the wayside. And now, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of those other things are, you know, still of concern, but much more under control than they were a year or two ago. And so companies are able to shift their focus and back onto those long-term goals. That's not to say we didn't have restaurants expanding by unit count last year, but um, you're right. A lot of the big ones are refocusing in on it now. Um, and there's lots of potential here. I mean, McDonald's is looking into, I mean, like, obviously McDonald's is everywhere, but they're focusing on specific regions. They're targeting the South for their growth right now. Um, <clears throat> we've got brands like Pot Valley refranchising stores. Um, I think we're going to see a big uh, bump in franchising across the board. Just um, this morning, Wendy's announced that they're doing 200 more units in Australia with um, Flynn Restaurant Group, which just made its Australia debut with Pizza Hut. Uh, so, you know, franchisees are more excited about the landscape right now. Uh, just kind of like a lot of perfect storms pointing to unit growth. Um, I'll say my nerdy heart is excited to see our top 500 data next year because I've been going through last year's unit data. Uh, and so I'm eager to see how this shakes out. Last year, we saw our like fastest growing unit chains were all like smaller emerging brands. Uh, so I'm excited to see some of these bigger guys like back on that list. Uh, well, first off, I picked the worst time to drink water the, down the wrong direction. <clears throat> and so as I continue to try to regain my composure and oxygen levels, bear with me because I might need to clear my throat and talk like a frog. Um, so, yes. Uh, Let's start with this point. These companies that you mentioned largely are public companies. They have a mandate to grow. They have to grow. That's the stakeholders, what they expect of them. If you look at these companies, you know, the last several, many years, unit growth has been very small. I mean, it's it's been, it's been, it's been um, you know, sort of uh, give a little, uh, lose a little, you know, in that they've, they've grown some, they've closed some. Um, but by but if you look at McDonald's, for example, they've hovered around that like 14,000 domestic locations uh, number for many, many years um, and and sort of similar with some of their uh, their competitors. Whereas Chipotle among the major chains is unique in that it has always had a lot of runway I, or always being that Chipotle is only what, 27 years old which is young compared to many of these other major chains. And so whereas a lot of the major chains kind of saturated, reached that saturation point earlier, Chipotle uh, has not. I mean, it still has runway ahead of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, the major chains reached a point of saturation, kind of leveled out, and then have been sort of hanging out there. 
I suspect because traffic been has been really hard to come by for the last couple of years, that's why they've probably shifted their focus back to unit growth because that's a way to grow. If you're not going to grow your traffic and therefore you're not going to necessarily grow your uh, profitability of each of your stores, grow your overall revenue, um, then you have to add locations to grow in that way. Uh, you know, once upon a time, a year ago, that was hard to do because of the supply chain uh, issues you were mentioning, Holly. And those have not suddenly solved themselves, but they have, I think, kind of gotten a little bit better. So now when you see the supply chain ease up for the, for the materials to build lo locations, you see the traffic levels still kind of stagnant and that mandate to grow, all of this combines. And oh, and the one final factor is this efficient model we've been talking about for so long is lending to smaller footprints with better, better profitability. So now that they have this option of building smaller locations that are doing just as good numbers, if not better, and they can squeeze those into uh, you know uh, plots that they once maybe could not have or would not have once looked at, but they now can with the help from third-party delivery companies and other off-premises channels, all of this sort of combines to give them, I think, permission to grow their unit count levels again. And again, when you, if you look at this fact that they, that they have to grow somehow, that's suddenly a, an unattractive way to do it. You know, Jack in the Box is one company I think about, I think a few months back on the podcast we wrote about or we talked about and had written about their um, smaller footprint and how it's, you know, doing some crazy amount of money per square foot compared to the QSR averages because it's so focused on off-premises um, service. And it's a very efficient model and they keep it flexible where they can kind of squeeze it into these little plots here and there. Um, you know, that's, that is a model for where QSR I think is going to continue to go because it opens up that white space again, you know, not to belabor the point, but once upon a time, McDonald's just simply did not have white space because of real estate, that saturation. Well, now all of a sudden it looks a little bit different just because you can take advantage of real estate that you couldn't before you have the tools available to make it more efficient. I mean, think about McDonald's. Didn't they just say that less than 10% of their business now is dine-in? I mean, when you think about that, okay, well, you don't need a dining room anymore for the most part. So, um, so yes, I think that's probably why we're, we're, we're seeing that unit count growth for the, from the perspective of smaller chains. And I think also um, tied into franchising, the demand for franchising is, has increased in the last two years because post-COVID, um, just like post-last recession, that um, organically leads to an interest in franchising to you know partner with a brand that can help you get into business in, at a season where it is difficult to do that on your own. The increase in franchise interest means that you have the populace of the world that are refranchising, taking advantage of the demand for franchising and um, you know, the major QSR chains uh, that's in their interest to franchise corporate locations that end up being kind of money pits of, you know, the, the expenses they have to pay. And they're not, you know, this way they can use somebody else's money to grow. Um, but from franchising, the emerging brands are kind of the only ones available. You know, the major chains are, are, are not available to the mom and pop or even not the mom and pop. But even if somebody's coming in looking for a five or 10 store deal, you just don't get those with the major chains anymore. So I think that's then why you see on the other side of things, the emerging brand really taking off with franchising and their unit counts growing quickly is because 
if you want to franchise a restaurant, you're open-minded about what that restaurant is, and the big proven chains are inaccessible to you, you're going to find an alternative. And that's what the emerging brands represent today. Well, it's interesting. You brought up profitability, which is something that we've seen from a few of our big brands, but they haven't really had profitability. So we're seeing brands like Sweetgreen inch closer to profitability. We're seeing Shake Shack inch closer to profitability. Um, I mean, this isn't contract trust to a chain that's like Chipotle that has no debt. I mean, so it's interesting to see some chains are working this quarter towards getting profitability. But it's also interesting that, you know, you brought up uh, units becoming smaller. We have Chick-fil-A's new drive-thru that's bigger, that has four drive-thru lanes. It's more like the Taco Bell Defy. And so I think we're seeing off-premises grow, which is, I think, interesting, even in light of the fact that there was a pandemic and that we had to shift to off-premises. We're still seeing it grow. Yeah, you're not going to see these smaller emerging brands open what you know taco bell did with defy and what chick-fil-a is doing with their new you know that's that is a company that has cash on hand and is willing to invest in something really out there and so taco bell and chick-fil-a are pulling that off right so that's why you do still see these kind of big swings when it comes to a major investment in the real estate but at the simultaneously, I don't know that Chick Fil A ever gave any numbers on how many of those they want to open. But you know, right now, I don't think the objective is let's open two hundred of these in the next year. It's like, hey, let's see how this thing does because maybe in five years we could justify really expanding these a lot more quickly. Um, but going back to your point about profitability, it's really interesting. I mean, I think a, a, a global pandemic will do that to you. Will will really kind of make you realize profitability is, is important. I think of, you know, I read this morning that WeWork is about to go bankrupt. WeWork is a classic case of a tech forward company, especially, but just a company that exploded in growth, had everybody's attention, created this new business model that everybody was in love with. The The sky was the limit, and yet it was never profitable. And so what happens when a global pandemic happens and everybody starts working from home and we work services no longer needed. Oh, well, you know, you're gone. It's, it's, you know, Uber is another case. I think Uber just turned their first profitable quarter in company history. If I'm remembering correctly, if I saw that, um, they've never been profitable because it's, 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 um, the, the model is just, it doesn't make sense from a profitability level, but Uber, as we all know, is highly, highly in demand. It just is, the costs are just insane. And so at some point that catches up to you. It caught up to WeWork. And I think kudos, especially to a company like Sweetgreen that I think always fancied itself sort of like the Uber of restaurants, not in its actual product, but just in its reputation. And they were so tech forward for so long and it wasn't, it wasn't profitable. And they've really started to turn that around and they've really been forward about their food and they're really you know, exploring ways to make it more convenient. And guess what? Not, you're you're going to become profitable if you, if you stop, you know, doing these fancy innovative toys that don't make you money and you focus on your core product that will make you money. Um, and I just think, yes, the last couple of years, again, it's, it's really been obvious that you got to get your books in order. You've got to um, turn a profit and just really focus on your unit economics and, and, and cash flow and all those things. Um, because if you just keep dumping money into something that's appealing to the customer, but not profitable, you run out of runway on that eventually. Well, and you mentioned traffic, which, you know, we're seeing a dip in and it's 
lapping a normal quarter, finally, you know, we had Omicron last year, this is lapping a normal quarter, but we're seeing traffic numbers kind of suffer. And I wonder if part of that is because this huge shift to delivery and takeout that we've all experienced and catering, like these are all things that we've just permanently adjusted ourselves to like to use. We're not using things in person. You were talking about dining room shrinking, McDonald's dining room, 10%. That's they're looking to gain traffic too. And so, I mean, are there, is there a way that we can actually get traffic back up or is that something that we're never going to be able to get? I mean, somebody in our audience is going to have to correct me here, but I think you can still count a delivery customer as traffic. I mean, you're, that's still a customer, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but um, it'll come back around, right? I mean, all these things are very cyclical. We are, we are going through, I think, a very natural cycle of business um, you know, it's a little funky because of inflation and how um, sales by and large are up, but traffic is stagnant because of inflation. Um, we talked about on a recent podcast, and I know our team has been doing some writing around um, the, just the fact that customers are going to hit their limit on how much they're willing to spend on restaurants. And so we'll see a natural come down, probably even with sales and traffic. Um, which is part of the reason you had to solve traffic now, because if that does come back around, you know, I think we're all, it's, I think it's safe to say at this point, we're probably not going into a recession, but that doesn't mean you're going to start to see um, demand slip as, as people are just fed up with what they're spending on things. I'll just throw out a personal anecdote at an airport yesterday. I paid $78 for the worst meal of my life for four, for our family of four, but it was, it amounted to essentially snacks. You know, I just, we just grabbed a couple things for the kids and some things that looked good for us, $78 and none of us finished our meals. Now that's an airport. So, you know, what are you going to do? Captive audience, blah, blah, blah. But as I've shared on this podcast before, and you all have experienced yourselves, I've had more and more, what did I just pay moments without a significant payoff on the other side of like, okay, okay. Yeah, that was worth it. Um, and 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 I'm in a unique position to understanding some of the the background of all of this, but just imagine your standard restaurant consum consumer who uh, is just fed up with paying so much money across service fees and tips and increased menu prices. Uh, they will cry uncle eventually, and I say all that for the sake of traffic because again. We're gonna have a bigger traffic problem down the road, so you gotta you've got to figure this out now. You got to make sure people are coming in your doors, and there's lots of levers on how to do that. Of course, value has long, especially in QSR, been one of the ways to do that. You offer some value deals to get them to come in the door, uh, but of course, that hurts your profitability if it's all discounting and value. Um, nowadays, you see a lot more strategies around loyalty and, you know, maybe using value as a way to get them to come become loyal customers. And then you use, you know, loyalty programs to once they're in, you get, you get them with a loyalty program and they keep coming back a lot of ways you can do it. But I think that's why it's such a focus right now is because yes, yeah, sales were up 2022, but that's a mirage because of inflation. Inflation is cooling. Demand is probably, you know, going to start cooling some as well. And so you got to find those ways to make sure the customers don't bail on you when they start bailing on restaurants in general. We are seeing a lot of, in my opinion, creative strategies to try to boost traffic right now, um, which is kind of nice. You know, six months ago, it was all about value. Everybody was playing the value game. Um, that doesn't seem to be having the effect that they want on traffic. Um, so restaurants are shifting gears and starting to focus on, okay, what can we do? specific to our brand 
Um, so an example of this is RBI. They've got four brands and they've got different strategies that they've laid out across each of their four brands. So um, at Tim Hortons, they're broadening their beverage menu. Menu innovation is a big thing right now that can bring in new customers. Um, Papa John's has been relying on it for a while and is still pushing menu innovation. Um, obviously, that's outside of RBI. Um, but, you know, they're working on still working on modernizing Burger King units. Their um, ongoing franchisee program is still in full swing over there. They're making changes to the kitchens at Popeye's. Um, they've got a lot of development in the works for Firehouse Subs, which goes along with what we were talking about earlier. Of course, that's their like newest brand. Um, so I think it's interesting to see restaurants. And again, you know, they have more space to think about things like this right now. Um, we've been talking about um, as a team, like we're seeing a lot more happy hour deals, uh, which goes back to value, but it also focuses on bringing people into your restaurant during a slower, traditionally slower day part. You know, how do we get more people into our casual dining chain from three to six after the lunch rush, before the dinner rush, happy hour? Uh, Day parts are something I think a lot of brands are thinking about right now. Tim Hortons talked about trying to bring customers in in the afternoons. Uh, Wendy's is pushing late night right now, uh, which is kind of interesting. I feel like for the last four years, every time we talked about Wendy's, we talked about breakfast. Um, and now they're going, wait, wait, but come back. Still come at other times of day too. Uh, so there's some interesting stuff going on and I'm curious to see, you know, what sticks, what works, whose traffic is going to look better next quarter. Well, yeah, and we've seen um, people really rush to marketing, which is something that was gone from the industry for a long time. So we're seeing this increase in marketing, especially on McDonald's and Taco Bell's part. So I'm curious to see how that shakes out too. For sure. Yeah, lots of big marketing moves, lots of, you know, big money being spent in marketing. I mean, McDonald's, you know, is always going to have the most money to throw at things like that. But yeah, other chains too, we're seeing more. I mean, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but something like seven or eight chains this year have been working with musicians specifically. Um, so yeah, lots of, I feel like there's, there's quite a bit of marketing money being tossed around. I mean, whatever it takes, you know, to get your customers in the door, Hey, your customer is a post Malone fan. Well, he's got his own raising canes in Utah. Like it's just, yeah, that's, that's what they're leaning on right now. Cause they can. And this is the TikTok, you know, moment, the TikTok era, if you want to call it right. And <clears throat> as audiences flock to something like TikTok, a big takeaway for, brands is not only do you have to have a presence on TikTok, but what is it that appeals to them on TikTok? It's the influencers, it's the celebrities, it's the musicians. Um, and so, you know, brand partnerships with um, other brands. And, I, and when I say brand, I can't mean, you know, personality, celebrity um, that have a lot of, you know, um, cachet in the zeitgeist right now, right? Like that's, uh, that is, a, it's a great way to ride some coattails uh, for lack of a better term and to get a fan of post Malone or a Snoop Dogg and Jack in the Box's case to come to your restaurant because they see that, that, you know, they're aligned to your brand. And um, so, yeah, marketing, you know, it's, it's certainly not shooting fish in a barrel because I mean, as we know, these celebrities personalities, I mean, they are expensive. Um, 
like crazy expensive. And I'm not saying that because I've ever done any marketing with a celebrity, but I am saying that because we've looked at celebrity speaking fees and wowza. <laughs> Let's just say that. So, um, you know, you, you better make sure you know what you're doing with your marketing and you better make sure it aligns with your own brand. But yeah, it's a great way to, um, to appeal to customers if what you want is more of them to visit your restaurant. I mean, at the end of the day, you want everybody to come to your restaurant. There's the moral of our story today. Here are all the ways you can do it. Here are all the ways brands around you are doing it. But we want you to come to restaurants. We're so good at our jobs. <laughs> We're great we at our jobs. We figured it out. We solved it for you. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to throw it over to Ron. And thank you guys so much for joining me. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Jeff and John, I appreciate it very much. Uh, Jeff, go ahead, introduce yourself, and then we'll turn to John. Sure. Thanks, Ron. Um, yeah, Jeff Kakara. I'm uh, the CEO of uh, three brands that we here, own here in uh, in Dallas, Texas. Um, 60 Vines, obviously, the brand we'll be talking about today. Mexican Sugar, which I'm sitting in today, and uh, another brand called Whiskey Cake. And um, yeah, so that's that's what I do. And how many 60 Vines are there? Right now, there's seven 60 Vines. We have another three in construction. Our next one will be uh, to open will be Charlotte, North Carolina here in about uh, several weeks. August 21st is opening day. And we're very fortunate on this time to have John Olney of Ridge Wine Vineyards here. John, go ahead, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, the partnership and how it came about. Yeah, uh, I'm John Olney. I've, uh, uh, I'm head winemaker for Ridge Vineyards. I've been with Ridge for a little over 25 years. Uh, I was uh, the assistant winemaker, and then became the winemaker at our Lytton Springs facility, which is where I am today up in Healdsburg. Uh, and then about three years ago, I took over as head winemaker, um, overseeing winemaking for both our Lytton Springs and our Montebello uh, winemaking facilities. And, you know, Ridge has always had a, a, a strong commitment to sustainability. Um, you know, we always say that the wines we make are all about place, um, which means it's all about nature. Um, so, you know, it was always in our interest to want to do things with a sustainability in, in mind. And so when, when, you know, when 60 Vines, you know, approached us about the idea of doing something in kegs, um, you know, it, it was appealing because, uh, you know, one of the things that we're really focusing a lot on in the wine industry is our carbon footprint. And, and one of the biggest uh, factors there is in the production of glass, um, you know, glass, um, requires an enormous amount of fossil fuels to, uh, you know, you're sort of melting rocks. And, um, you know, stainless steel uh, keg uh, offers an alternative to that. Um, and it's, you know, by definition, um, very reusable. I mean, I, you know, we have stainless steel tanks that we ferment in, and I have tanks in the winery here that were built in 1978, and they're every bit as good as the ones that I've had built last year. Now, this uh, relationship started in May, correct? Yeah, it was kickoff was May, I think, right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, right about there. And tell us a little bit about 60 Vines and your tap wine program and how Ridge fits into that. Jeff? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's uh, Ridge has always been, you know, obviously known for some of the best wines in the world. Um, and our, uh, our previous wine director, guy by the name of Gene Zimmerman, who he was, he is probably one of the biggest fans of Ridge on the face of the earth. And when we put, when we started putting together, you know, our, our plan on, you know, who, 
who do we who do we really want to try and partner with? Who do we want to really um, you know what what helps us really develop and grow grow this program? And you know, there's a number of names out there, but the one that we uh, we kept coming back to was Ridge and Gene. Um, you know, got with uh, a handful of people over at Ridge before I guess meeting John at some point. Um, but uh, long story short, you know, our our, our due diligence and, and Ridge's vision, um, you know, visionary. Um, ideas, um, you know, especially around sustainability kind of jived with us and 60 vines. That's what, the concept was founded. You know, our, our founder, Randy DeWitt was, has another restaurant here near where I'm at in Las Colinas right now. Um, and it does very high volume. And he was in the restaurant one day watching all these bottles go into the trash and some going into, you know, knowing that some go to recycle, but only about 20% of bottles really get recycled. Um, if that, so 80% land or more land in the, you know, in the landfill. Um, so that was really one of the original ideas of 60 Vines and, and, and kegging uh, tap wines came into his head. And then on another trip out to wine country, he was sitting and realized the beauty of, you know, when, when you go out to wine country and you have a really great meal and some people get, some people have a little bit more luck being able to sit in the vineyards and enjoy you know, dinners with winemakers, especially those of us in the business, we get to see some things sometimes behind the curtain and really enjoy, um, you know, some some added experiences out there. And um, we had one of those, or Randy had one of those one day and, and, and kind of married the two ideas to really bring kind of a wine country tasting room feel um, combined with um, the sustainability side of what TAP um, tap wine does and you know it, it to John's point about making bottles you know that is it is very you know takes a lot of heat and a lot of energy to produce a bottle of wine or just the glass for wine um, and then on the flip side you know a keg is 26 bottles so there's 26 bottles not going into landfill you know potentially every time we tap a keg and that also includes corks and foils. Corks, foils, yeah, absolutely. And then even just nowadays, and John, I don't know if you guys have. I, I think you may have your own bottling, uh, or do you roll in the do you roll in the bottling trucks? No, we have our own facilities. Yeah, I thought you guys may have your own. A lot of wineries though are rolling in, you know, mobile bottle in bottling uh, trucks, and you know, there's just another another vehicle on the road burning gas going back and forth to to a lot of different wineries bottling wine. So. Uh, you, Jeff, mentioned that your son just got married and has a special connection to Ridge my, Wine. My son actually just got married, and, and uh, he was, John, you met him. He was the guy out there filming all that stuff. Well, we were, uh, he called me up a few, about a few days before the, the wedding and said, Dad, I got, I got, I got Ridge Chardonnay for my, uh, for my, for my, uh, for my reception. And he was all geeked up because he, I guess you had given him a bottle while he was out there and he just was, you know over the moon and so you uh, created a you've created a new uh, a, a new ridge fan for sure fan. yeah yeah so we're drinking montevello chardonnay and it's fantastic because it's just drinked in live we always say what we're drinking i'm just drinking a red wine john you said you were drinking a montebello yeah i have um i've got the 2019 uh montebello here in the glass um we happen to have it open in the tasting room so uh, poured myself a glass of that, and um, it's actually drinking drink quite quite well. You're drinking much better than I am. <laughs> tell us tell us a little bit about Ridge and the Judgment of Paris. So, uh, in 1976, a um, 
a wine merchant from England, Stephen Spurrier, put on a tasting in which he featured six uh, California Cabernets and six of the top uh, French Bordeaux. And he did the tasting in Paris and he invited uh, French wine professionals, French uh, winemakers. And, um, you know, the wines were tasted blind. No one really knew what was going to happen. He sort of assumed, and a lot of people probably did, that the, the Bordeaux wines would be selected as the best wines. But in fact, um, it was a California uh, Cabernet. It was the Stag's Leap that was chosen first. Um, in the lineup of 12, I think Bridge at that time was uh, chosen as a fifth wine. But a lot of people said that, a lot of French people said, well, you know, California wines are all fruity and they don't age. So 30 years later, they actually reenacted the exact same tasting. And in that tasting, Bridge was uh, selected as the top wine that had really gone the length of time that he evolved and, and retained the complexity that you expect from a, a wine that can age. So it was a, it was a, um, you know, it was a big moment for, uh, you know, in, in the wine world and certainly for, uh, for the California wine world. Well, and congratulations to you and Ridge. What, what do you usually drink when you're just uh, recreationally drinking, John? Well, at this time of year, you know, in California, where it's plenty warm, um, you know, I, I, I turn more to the to the white wines, to the rosés. You know, we've actually started making some rosé at Ridge um, from our Lytton Springs Vineyard, uh, which, you know, is, is very tasty, lighter in body, lower in alcohol. Um, and it seems like the colder it is, the better it tastes. So lot, lots of those kind of things. I like a lot of Italian whites, kind of little off offbeat things like uh, Arneas and Falandina. Uh, you know, and, and same on the reds. I mean, I sort of move probably more towards Cru Beaujolais. Uh, you know, we make uh, a Carignan here at Ridge, which, you know, a little higher acidity, a little lighter, uh, lighter wine profile. And what you're offering through uh, 60 Vines is the Three Valleys Zinfandel, correct? That's correct. And that's our one one blended wine. It's a blend of a number of different vineyards, but it's Zinfandel based. And I think we should uh, let the viewers know the barking you're hearing in the background. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I, I, I recently uh, have a got a got a new puppy. It's a Red Asian Ridgeback and uh, he's He's over there kind of having some fun with his playmate. I, he said he'd be quiet. But, uh. <laughs> That's good. Uh, Jeff, what are you drinking? You're not drinking a wine. I noticed that. Oh, no. And I, 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 I'm remiss not to have a, a glass of Ridge in my hand. But um, like I said, I'm at Mexican Sugar today. And um, uh, so I'm drinking a, a little bit of a, it's called the La Catrina. It was a drink we made for a De La, De La Mortis uh, celebration that we had. And it's a um, kind of a mezcal based um, riff on a margarita little tahine on the rim and uh, the marigold, um, which is the, you know, the flower of the, of, of the ceremony, but um, yeah, delicious. And it's 104 here in Texas, as you know, Ron. So uh, I figure we yes. got something cold and icy. Yes. The colder, the more ice cubes, yeah. the better at this point. Uh, Jeff, you had some data on how much you've actually saved from a sustainability perspective since introducing the Three Valley Zinfandel. Could you mind sharing some of those? Well, I can tell you that um, you know it's a, a mix of things. We've 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 um, we've we've brought in a, almost uh, it's almost 600 bottles. Um, it equates to about 600 bottles right now from the time we started the process. Um, um, and uh, 
the number of kegs is now divide that by 26 it's slipping my mind but um you know and that's what what's funny about it is sometimes when we say you know we've sold 10 kegs or you know it's oh 10 kegs well it's 260 bottles right so um we uh we talk in bottles a lot of times to really make sure you understand or we understand the um you know the gravity of of, of what the sustainability um can be when it comes to the cave but uh but uh, beyond that too it's just uh it's taken off very well our staff is obviously super excited about it um we did a great promotion and a, and a kickoff with it and um you know it's just uh it's it's a fantastic wine and people are uh, really excited to see it on tap what kind of patina does bringing Ridge into this partnership give to the 60 Wines adult beverage program? Uh, it just brings more legitimacy to what we're doing. Um, you know, I could tell you that um, when uh, we went out, when the concept was started, a lot of the, a lot of the kegs that we would get um, were, you know, our kegs that were kind of in the market already. Um, and it, you know, it, could be a range of quality, could be a range of brands, could be a range. And, and, and there really wasn't, um, you know, a whole lot of dominant um, wine makers and players um, kegging wine at the time. And um, it's grown through the years. We've had some great partners along the way that have partnered with us even from the beginning. Um, but, um, you know, when someone like Ridge comes along, it adds to that list and it adds to the credibility. And it also makes people realize that, you know, hey, you know, fine wines can be put in keg. and um, um, you know, they pre taste pretty darn good. Uh, John, from uh, the vineyard's perspective, what are the hurdles and benefits of a program like this? Well, I mean, for in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the winemaking, nothing's really changed. It's the same wine. Um, and really, the, when it comes to bottling, I mean, bottling is probably one of the most complicated parts of the winemaking process. So when when we go to keg basically all we're doing is we're taking the wine out of barrel we're blending it and then rather than going through the whole bottling process we simply it just goes into a keg and yeah we send it to a facility um so it's actually a simpler process for us you know we just have to um, send the wine out of the winery and then they take care of the whole kegging uh operation uh at a facility that specializes in that and does the kegging uh, facility ship it to 60 Vines? Correct. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Jeff would know more of the, the details on logistics. But yes, they they ship it there. And then um, and then that same keg uh, gets returned to them, refilled and the, the loop, you know, repeats itself, which is which really is one of the biggest advantages of the stainless. Like Jeff said, I mean, you know, glass is perfectly recyclable, but um, with a with a keg, you make it and you don't throw it into the recycling pile and it breaks and then it has to be remelted and remade once it's made i don't know what the lifespan of a keg is yeah, there is a lifespan i forget what it is but it's, it's pretty long i want to say 10 years at least well and especially when it's 104 degrees in texas sustainability becomes a big uh, issue at this point yeah that's right uh, Jeff, you were saying uh, some of your best sellers on your list uh, since when did the first 60 Vines open? Uh, we're we're uh, about seven years ago now, um, 27, 2016, late 2016 we opened. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, um, we did a lot of, um, 
we had a custom line of keg wines that we called vine huggers at the time. And um, those were those were kind of our top sellers out of the gate because a lot of people assume that was kind of the, the house wine, if you will. But it was, you know, it was actually made by a great winemaker by the name of Bill Nettles. Um, and he did some great stuff for us and, and uh, helped, you know, he himself helped legitimize, um, you know, this 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 concept, too, and, and what we're doing. And uh, so the, those who are not aware or not have been to a 60 Vines, do you still offer different size pours and flavors? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and that's the beauty of it. So we have we have 60 taps on the wall, hence the name 60 Vines, about 50, 50 plus, 55, somewhere around there uh, are wines. And um, the beauty of it is, is that you can come in and try any one of them. We'll give you a free taste of anything. Um, and then you can do, which is about an ounce, you know, we'll give you a free ounce taste of anything to, to, to see, you know, get, have you find the right wine for yourself or you can do a flight and you can do flights at, you know, two and a half ounces. Um, and we'll sell you a two and a half ounce pour all the way up to a full bottle, obviously. Um, and in, you know, the beauty of it is it's a low barrier to entry One, you can taste anything for free. If you want to, you know, if you'd like that taste, but you're not ready to pay for the eight, eight ounce glass or a bottle and you, you don't want to sip it for a minute to make sure you truly like that white tempranillo or whatever peak pole or something, you know, something different um, or ridge. Um, you can do it at two and a half ounces and we have two and a half ounce glasses starting as low as four dollars, you know, all the way up. So um, it's a low barrier entry. You can really come in and find something different, something special try something like a ridge um that might be you know maybe an eight ounce class might not be in your budget but a two and a half pounds pour is something you want to try and and and, and you know there, there you go there you, you start your addiction <laughs> uh, how, how do you market a premium wine like ridge uh as compared to your other ones you know we um you know obviously you look at our tap menu and the tap menus are basically a placemat on the table and it stays with you the whole experience so you can be you know picking and choosing and doing your taste um you know we don't uh, you know the prices are obviously on there you can see what a two and a half ounce pour is you can see what a five ounce pour an eight ounce pour and a, and a bottle price is um but we don't you know we really don't um hone in on um you know on, on marketing at a different price level um our servers are really taught to kind of we do a different we do a different type of service you know in a lot of restaurants there's the you know the 10 or 7 or 11 uh steps of service we have four four pieces to our service um it's welcome um tailor host tent and in the welcome it's all about just getting to know where that person is kind of on the wine spectrum what they're looking to drink um are they are they adventurous or are they just you know hey i'm in i'm here for a, a glass of cab and a, and a steak um, or are we going to mix it up and do a couple of flights? Are we going to mix it up and do, so it's really, um, it's really just getting to know the guests and getting them into the right wine versus trying to get a specific wine into every guest. If that makes sense. Uh, I'm especially interested in the tempting part of yeah. your four-step program. Yeah. How do you train your staff to tempt people into trying more food or more drink? Well, the, the tempting piece is, is, um, you know, towards the end of the meal, welcome Taylor host tenth, and when it's all said and done, the tenth is really how do you get them back, or how do you how do you excite them to come back? And that's either we're doing a wine dinner, or we've got a couple new taps coming, or you know, the temptation of, of dessert is also part of the tenth, uh, you know, the, the the tenth piece. But it's it's really about trying to make that connection so they come back, and it's either 
you know, come back and see me. We've got a new rosé. Maybe we'll get some of that Ridge rosé from John on uh, in keg one day. But, um, um, you know, maybe it's something, you know, coming down the road, we've got something that we're going to tap and, and you got to come check it out or we've got a cool event coming or, you know, something like that. That's usually what the temps are. Well, and speaking of tempting, John, what other wines would you consider for doing something in the sustainability uh, mode? Well, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about other wines that I think, you know, would, would probably do well in kegs, I mean, um, you know, white wine is not a big part of what we do, but uh, we do make uh, a Grenache Blanc from down in Paso Robles that is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a wine that, you know, we make a Chardonnay like Jeff was talking about, which is something that, that certainly has a lot more ageability to it. Um, we like to see people actually put a few years on it in bottles if they can. Uh, whereas the Grenache Blanc is just something you you make and you want to drink it as soon as uh, as soon as it's done fermenting. So, um, you know that that that's one that comes to mind. Um, and like I said, you know, for example, you know, Carignan things that things that present a little better uh, uh, in our in our portfolio uh, at a younger age, you know, seem to be the most appropriate. Yeah, um, you want to drink it. I mean, it's it's not you know we don't age kegs. Um, right. We want to we want to burn through them. So it's definitely you know dr drink it drink it uh, drink it while it's uh, when it, you know it's ready now to drink. You know. uh, jo uh, Jeff, this is a question for you. Logistically, how do you order and get the wine in once when you're dealing with a premier winemaker like this? Well, so yeah, John had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we we. Um, Free Flow is probably our main kegging partner out there right now. They um, they they keg, they'll store, they'll, uh, they'll ship to distribution. Um, you know, in, in most cases, uh, it comes, it goes through Free Flow and then out um, into the distributor, into the local market. So, um, you know, we have local distributors in all of our markets. Um, some are the same, some may be different from state to state, um, but it gets shipped into local distribution. And then from there, the local restaurant bar manager is ordering it. It's coming. It's coming on the, the, the weekly delivery truck, just like any other any other uh, uh, wine or, or liquor product. And as you're expanding to other states, uh, you mentioned North Carolina's next. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and that's a control state, so it makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, I was going to say, how do you deal with that? The yeah, uh, the liquor yeah. laws. Yeah, we um, well, we we have a we have our beverage director who's out there. Um, he was out there actually last week working with the the state store. Um, who will, you know all this stuff has to get passed through those stores, and um, you know, in, in that in those in those particulars, a handful of them around the country, it's really it's really about relationships with your local with your local state store um, and making sure that um, they understand what you do because um, in some cases, especially in the control states, they don't see a whole lot of kegs. Um, but, um, you know, we, we have to work with the distributors to make sure they're in market from the district, from the distribution hub and then into the state store. And then, you know, and then there's logistics from there because in some States they don't deliver and you have, they have third party delivery services. So yeah, logistically it gets in some markets, it can be re really difficult. Um, North Carolina is a little bit difficult, but it's, you know, people have been doing it for, for ages and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just the cost of doing business. Uh, John, what is the biggest advantage for uh, Ridge Vineyards in doing this project? Well, I think it's, you know, for us, it, it gives us the opportunity to, um, you know, to experiment at this level, you know, with something that is, 
you know, obviously sustainable, uh, to give it a try to see, you know, for us, it's, it's kind of the, the opportunity for discovery, you know, cause it, it's, it's uncharted territory, you know, the bridge has never done this before. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's, I think when you, when you look at sustainability, I think everyone agrees that there's no single answer to the, to the issue of uh, reducing carbon footprint. Um, so you take the opportunities that, um, you know, that present themselves. You guys are three months into the forward-facing or consumer-facing part of this project. Any learnings or advice at this point? Well, you know, I was there for the kickoff, and and I, to be honest, you know, Jeff probably has a little better intel on just how how the wines were being received. You know, I mean, I certainly have only had good feedback, but you know, it's it's indirect. You know, maybe California. Right. Yeah, no, the wine and wines are being received um, amazingly. Um, the, the the team, you know, obviously is behind it um, 110. percent Our, you know, our 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 service teams out uh, in the field, um, they, you know, a lot of them are are working for us because of the re, you know the sustainability reason, and they 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 really appreciate and buy into what we're doing, and we're continuing. We're always continuing. You know, it's not just glass and and and, and you know the keg sustainability in our restaurants. We're we're trying to reduce our carbon footprint in, in a number of ways, but and that that's the mission, um, you know, of the restaurant and the company. But as far as how how things are going with Ridge and, and the learnings, um, you know, we've been we've been doing this now for a long time, and and uh, we've learned our lessons through the years, and now now it's really um, it's really about us continuing to find great partners like Ridge and really grow you know, this genre, if you will, um, you know, of, of, of wine service. I mean, you know, our, in our why, it's about changing wine culture through adventure and discovery. And yes, the sustainability piece is a huge piece on why we do it, but we, we also know that the wine culture in general, you know, we, when, we, when we go and knock on doors, a lot of times we hear winemakers say, hey, you know, my, my wine is just best under glass, in glass under cork, and that is what it is. And, and, and we respect and appreciate that. We do not look down our nose on that, but we still are gonna to continue to knock on doors and find partners to continue to grow the amount of wines that we can serve and the amount of wines we can introduce to, you know, to our guests. Um, and, and the beauty of our guests is they are, they are searching for a little bit more adventure and discovery. And we are serving different wines that, you know, a 24 or a 34 year old may, may, not, may never have. And, you know what to have um to have a ridge a glass of ridge of any kind you know in your 20s is kind of it might be a little different experience for some people um you know it's, I, I would have given my eye teeth to have had a ridge when i was in my 20s no doubt no <laughs> doubt i can tell you that I, I i remember the first time i had um ridge montebello which you're drinking right there john and it, it was an amazing experience so uh, what what do you see as the future of sustainability in the restaurant and wine industries? Well, I mean, you know, I think again, it's 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 about a multi-pronged approach. You know, I mean, for example, on you know, we, we've talked about um, you know the partnership with Sixty Vines in terms of kegs. Um, you know, but for for everything we do put it in bottle, we've moved to uh, lighter weight glass. You know, which is certainly a step in the right direction, um, you know, less of a carbon footprint footprint to produce. And then, you know, in terms of shipping, um, 
you know, likewise. Uh, you know, when we built the winery that I'm sitting in here um, years ago, you know, we chose to build a straw bale winery. Uh, so obviously natural uh, raw materials, uh, very high insulation value. Uh, you know, we have solar panels on the roof, so we're producing most of our own electricity. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, I, I think a lot is just in looking at you know, doing sort of a, an audit of your, of your uh, you know, what goes into producing a bottle of wine and then finding the opportunities where you can get the same quality, um, but by uh, reducing the footprint. And Jeff, what does sustainability give to the restaurant operator as far as either labor, getting people, uh, customers? Well, I, I think our customers really appreciate the story um, around the sustainability piece, and they, they feel like they're doing their part when they when they drink wine from keg. Um, but, I, you know, if I could answer just kind of the question around what sustainability looks like for restaurants and the, the, the really the number one waste issue and the worst piece of, um, you know, the, the environmental damage that we do is really with the amount of food waste. Food waste is the number one um, waste going into landfills nowadays, and and that is the piece that the restaurant community and, and we're we're trying to figure out the whole composting issue. And so when you ask two two answers, to this question is your 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 question directly to me about what it looks like. It is a lot more work for us to be sustainable. It is a lot more work for us as it is for John to be more you know organic or sustainable. Or uh, it, it is a lot more work, but it's it's work we all have to do and it has to be part of the cost of doing business and we we need help technology wise to get there um we need help um you know from our stakeholders to get there um and uh and and at the end of the day we need help from our teams to roll up their sleeves and, and buy in and, and and just do it and you know those are the things we're trying to address piece by piece um to hopefully become more more sustainable and a, you know a better partner to the earth well, the fact that you've got uh, Ridge, Three Valley, Zinfandel now by the tap, I think is a step or a stride in that direction. Yeah, for so sure. thank you both for doing that and for the partnership. And uh, thank you both for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you. Yep, thanks, John. Good to see you, John. See you, Jeff. Yeah, take care. <laughs>